Thanks, Krista. Well, he is risen. Yeah, you're getting better. Each year it creeps up a little bit. He is risen. You better use. Uh, today is, as Sandy said, today is a day of, of great joy, of great celebration for the Christian church. On Friday, on Good Friday, we looked at how the love of God was communicated through the cross and Sunday becomes the day where all of those claims that were made about the love of God, we're going to... We're going to spend today uh, just looking at a couple of things of of how those who these these women these people who went to the first tomb, uh, how they discovered the tomb, how they understood it uh, for the first time that Jesus was risen, that he that he wasn't dead, and, and and just and just what that might have been like. And we're going to reflect on a couple of things in that. Unlike any other religious leader or founder of a religious movement. You can't go to the, the grave of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, and, and, and find him sitting there and reflect with him on, on his life and, and, or, or go and read about the things that he wrote. You can't meditate on his writings because Jesus never wrote anything. Jesus literally left nothing about himself behind. The only way that we know Jesus, the only way we get to now hear about Jesus is through the testimony, through the, through the written testimony that Jesus out of the gate at that point said to the women, said to the disciples to go and tell the world he is risen. And the only way that we now get to, to encounter him personally is through hearing about this message of a resurrected saviour. So today we're just going to look at this testimony that Luke has written down of the discovery that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I just want to grab uh, three um, things that this news should do for us. The resurrection makes us marvel. We should marvel at the miraculousness of it. And the resurrection should today, as we're marveling, as we're sitting down, I'm sure we've got plenty we want to do, but we should just marvel at the miraculousness of it. We should... Find some time today to sit and just marvel at the, at the meaning of the resurrection and we should at some point just uh, marvel at the, at the mystery of it. We read Luke's uh, account of the resurrection that a group of women are heading to the tomb of Jesus to finish off, essentially to finish off the burial procedures, to care for for his body in a meaningful way. This is their friend. This is the one who'd loved them, who'd given them dignity and meaning like no other. And, and he'd been cruelly uh, beaten and crucified and jammed quickly into a tomb. And now, uh, after the Sabbath, they were heading down to care for the body in a meaningful way. The Sabbath restrictions had meant from Friday afternoon now to Sunday morning, they hadn't been able to do anything. Jesus had been left in that tomb uh, by himself and so what we have here is a group of grieving people, a group of desolate people who have nothing but the memories of Jesus to carry them forward, to, to hold on to, to talk about perhaps as, as they go and do life. 
They have nothing but the example of Jesus to follow as a motivation for their way of life. It's been a pretty compelling example, that's for sure. He loved the unlovable. He, he cared for the uncareable. He healed the sick. He demonstrated also that he was prepared to even die for his ideals, for his cause. And that's how some people think of Easter. They think of Jesus this way, just a historic figure who led an exemplary life, a life worthy of respect, even of emulation, a good teacher. But the idea that he was anything more, that he raised himself from death, that he lives today, well, that, that's just idle tales. That's just, that's just mythological uh, tales that the church crept into uh, their existence to to. to, to to continue the, the story of Jesus. It's implausible. There's no way it could have happened. And that's the very presupposition. That's, that's the very critique that Luke is going after and exposes. And he causes the sceptical heart to stop and pause and to perhaps marvel at the miraculous. These women too... Uh, have no plausible structures themselves to even contemplate a resurrection. It's not in their thinking. And that's why they carry these spices. That's why they're heading to the tomb to embalm the body. They expect to find a dead body in that tomb. The only thing that they're contemplating on the way is is how to get into the tomb. Mark records for us that they talked about how they're going to get into the tomb, the great stone that that stood in the way, that, that sealed the tomb. Well, they don't have to wait too long to get an answer to how they're going to get into the tomb. When they get to the tomb, the stone has been moved. It's been rolled away, rolled away by an angel. Commentators often say the angel did not move the stone so Jesus could get out. He'd already made his bed and left. The stone was moved so that people could get in and see that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was no longer there. To their great confusion, to their great surprise, they go inside. There's no, there's no body in this tomb. This tomb is empty. As they are there scratching their heads, thinking about this, wondering where the body might be, we are told two angels bring them some news that, that just challenges and, and just shatters all of uh, their thinking, all of the limited thinking they may have had, of, of any of the preconceived ideas that they might have had, that it's just impossible for someone to be raised from the dead. You won't find Jesus buried in a tomb because the living don't reside in tombs. You need to go and look somewhere else for Jesus. He is risen. They'd seen him die. They'd seen him wrapped in clothes. And now they see where those clothes lie, still in the tomb. They saw where he was placed in the tomb. They saw him locked into the tomb with the stone. All four Gospels have these women as the continuous eyewitness to the death. They were at the cross of Jesus, to the burial of Jesus. They were there when he was buried and now to the empty tomb. And now, miraculously, they are being told that everything that they dreaded Everything that they, that they talked about on the way to the tomb, the loss, the loss of their friend, that death had taken their friend, that death had ended the love and the, and, and, and the dignity that their friend had extended to them had now been miraculously reversed. The empty tomb 
the resurrection makes us marvel at the miraculous. Makes us marvel at the only plausible explanation that accounts for the absence of Jesus' body. The testimony of the angels that he lives. And lives not in some kind of uh, mystical, uh, spiritual sense, but lives as a living, breathing person. He has been resurrected back to life. Eternal life. Now, rather arrogantly at times, what some people like to say is, well, you know, of course, of course, of course the early church could get a story like that uh, to circulate because it's a pre-scientific world. They didn't understand that this is a closed universe. There's no scope for the miraculous. If you think like that, you are who Luke is after because he exposes in his account that the bodily resurrection of someone was just as fanciful, just as implausible to the first century mind as it is to the modern mind. If we, were to, if we skip down to verses 10 through to 11, these women, uh, when they get back to the disciples with this miraculous story and, and, and share and tell this story, are just dismissed out of hand. Idle tales, that's crazy talk. Now, maybe this is because the testimony of women uh, in this culture carried no legitimacy. In some extreme views uh, held by some rabbis, women were not uh, uh, capable or even worthy of holding knowledge. Their testimony was not given uh, any credibility. You know, better to, to burn the Torah than for it to be taught to a woman. That was the culture of the day. Now, just even that, on that is something to marvel at itself. This is what historians call the ring of truth, aspects of the story that give it historic credibility. If you're trying to spread a story, if you're trying to start a religious movement, start, a, start up a, a movement of some sorts, trying to convince a first century audience that a man who has been dead for three days is now alive and is risen back to life, you don't have as your first key witnesses women, as all four Gospels do. Not in that culture. Smarter play would have been to have Joseph of Arimathea or even Israel's leading scholar Nicodemus who John's Gospel places as Joseph's accomplice in securing the body of Jesus in its burial, they would have been better people to have to start this story. But God entrusts the linchpin of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, to these women. Right out of the gate or the tomb, the gospel comes to us in miraculous ways, unconventional ways. It comes to us in weakness, in humility, but in ways that are already demolishing inequality and redefining culture. For these women in ways that would convince them that Jesus' love for them was not terminated with his death. But it was made even more powerfully clear and enduring in his resurrection. However, the disciples dismissed these women perhaps more because, not merely because of culture, because these disciples know that people just don't come back to life from the dead. It just doesn't happen. 
And even though Jewish thinking allowed for a resurrection, that was something that was at the end of the age, outside of human time, if you like, in the, in the new age that God would, would, would create. But the thought of somebody being resurrected back to full life inside of human history to walk amongst us, never heard of. There is nothing, there is no, uh, no experience, no historical precedent for this kind of thinking. This idea that these women present to these men is unique. It is the first time it's ever been heard, ever been contemplated. It's found nowhere in any thinking, in any culture, in any religion or teaching until this moment. No one had understood what Jesus had said about raising himself back to life. Because no one had any structures in which to understand it. They all thought, oh yeah, yeah, raise yourself back to life, like, like you know, down the track sometime. It took overwhelming evidence for these first Christians to accept the resurrection. Overwhelming evidence of Jesus physically appearing and standing before them. We get a glimpse of how the resurrection was received by first century thinkers in Acts 17. Paul's preaching there. In verse 30 he says, Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some scoff this, at this learned scholar Paul. Uh, Israel's highest thinker was mocked about this news. But others said, we will hear about this again. Not one person just simply accepted it. It was mocked or it was thought about. The possibility of a resurrection was just as implausible to the ancient as it is to the modern. And Luke knows that we are sceptical because even the disciples doubted the news. So he names the witnesses for us. He writes into this story these women. Look in verses uh, 10. There's Joanna. She is the wife of an administrator of Herod's house. There's Mary Magdalene who we were going to talk about today. Her story was going to be our story uh, today. But I'm hanging that one on the hook for next year. She's a woman with a sketchy past. She's a demoniac. Seven demons cast out of her. And there's Mary, the mother of James, a well-known wealthy woman. Her son is an apostle. These are all well-known women. What Luke is saying is, if you are sceptical, here are some eyewitnesses. Go and talk to them. And very soon the disciples will be added to this list. And as, and as Paul mentioned this morning in that kind of crazy text where over 500 people, Paul the Apostle mentions it in Corinthians and, and Paul mentioned it this morning, that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. And just there's some crazy names that are listed like footnotes in the scriptures and they're there to say, hey, hey, go and talk to these people. Luke's gospel is written in a time when those who saw the empty tomb, who saw the risen Jesus, were still alive. We're talking 60 to 65 AD. They're still kicking around. So you could go to their house. You could go to the places where Jesus appeared to people and you could find people who had encountered evidence so overwhelming that it shattered their prejudices. 
evidence so real that it breaks through their theories and leaves them marveling at the miraculous work of God that took place on Easter Sunday that raised Jesus to life. They saw it. They witnessed it. It transformed their lives so, with so much conviction that many of these people would go on dying holding on to this claim. If you think that the testimony of the resurrection comes from idle tales from people who were too dull to dispute it, you're one who is committing an act of gross ignorance. Chronological arrogance, Timothy Keller calls it, that says we moderns with our so-called progressive scientific minds are too clever to believe in the miraculous. People don't rise from the dead. Miracles don't happen. But you see, the empty tomb calls us to marvel, calls us to marvel at a God who is greater than death, greater than the so-called closed rules of the universe. Marvel at a God who can do the miraculous, who can defeat even the mighty power of death and do the miraculous and raise people to eternal life, raise Jesus to eternal life and in doing so, let us know that the same is on offer for those who enter into a relationship with him. Easter Sunday, uh, the empty tomb, makes us marvel at the meaning of this. The angelic messenger there is there in the absence of Jesus. He doesn't just tell them that Jesus uh, has done this amazing thing. He asks them to place it in the context of Jesus' ministry. You see, the resurrection doesn't take place in splendid isolation. It's not something that you've got to try and derive meaning out of. Rather, it is the thing, the event from which all other things, all other events derive their meaning, their significance. The cross and the resurrection are not things that happened to Jesus or outside of his mission. They are the mission. They are why. It is why Jesus came. We are to understand the resurrection in the context of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus promised. In fact, if we are to understand uh, the resurrection in the context of all that God had promised, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. So all that Jesus had said, all when Jesus said, those who come to me are going to find peace, are going to find rest. When Jesus said, you know, I... I take away the sins of the world. These are crazy claims. And in his resurrection, they are all validated because God validates the man who said them by raising him to life, putting his stamp of approval on him as the communicator of God's love, as a communicator of God's truth, as a remover of sin. The resurrection is not only an epilogue on the ministry of Jesus, not some kind of postscript at the end of his earthly life. It is the goal of his life. It's the high point of the Gospels that Jesus came to deliver, that God is calling a new people with a new heart to live in newness of life. The resurrection interprets all that Jesus did and said. It is also the divine vindication of all that he did and said. Not merely laying down his life as an example, but giving it 
in order to secure a future and a hope and eternal life for those who hear the testimony of it and believe in it. The angel says, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They remembered that Jesus had, what Jesus had said. And they are joining the dots. And they are marveling now at the meaning, the, the revealed meaning of the resurrection, of what Jesus had spoken of. Now they're starting to get some structures. Now they're starting to get some hooks. It means that all that Jesus promised in, in, in ways uh, are now finding greater significance and truth. His death, his resurrection are for us. They have implications for us. We didn't need a good example. We didn't need a moral teacher. We needed someone who can raise us to newness of life, who can take dead hearts and make them new. That's the meaning of the resurrection. The Son of Man must die is the controlling sentence here. They knew Jesus had died, but now they begin to see why he died. Not because he's forced, not because uh, it's the only but because it's the only way for sin to be dealt with that, that doesn't actually punish us. The resurrection means that God is satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. The cross has achieved its goal. Paul talked about it again this morning. When that, when that, when that veil was ripped, when that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, what it was saying was, Access to God has been made. You don't need to come through the sacrifice of dead animals and and priests and these things anymore. The way to God is through the Son and it's available to all. The promise of new life. The marvel on the meaning of it. And finally, the resurrection makes us marvel at the mystery. Peter was no doubt amongst those who were sceptical about the testimony of the women. But something stirs in his heart. Something gets him up out of his self-pity and takes him to the empty tomb where he finds the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. An empty tomb and some folded grave clothes. If only Jesus could turn up in my house and talk to my kids. This was not the act of vandalism, as some people said. This was not the stealing of a body as some people hear hear of, you know. This has the fingerprints of God everywhere. Peter has not yet come to a full uh, and complete faith in the reality of a risen saviour. But his heart, his heart is strangely warmed and he's marvelling at what might be before him. The resurrection does the same thing to us 2,000 years on. Its testimony stands forth. It can't be silenced by implausibility. It can't be silenced by Rugby Australia. It gives meaning to the human condition. A yearning for hope. And 2,000 years on, we marvel at the mystery being revealed. That is the wisdom of God from death hope 
from faith that God in Jesus has overcome the grave. And now for those who believe, for those who hear, for those who trust, eternal life, the same life that was on display in the resurrected body of Jesus is now being offered to all. This morning we marvel as we reflect on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the greatest message of Easter this Sunday to marvel on of all that it speaks of is the love of Jesus for us. That it didn't just end at a cross but that it rose again to life. Normally death ends relationships but the marvellous news of Easter is that the testimony, the witness about Jesus is that he lives and that you can know him and that you can encounter his love and that you can have forgiveness for sins and enter into a relationship with God through the risen Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that today we gather to... um, celebrate this testimony that stands forth 2,000 years uh, spoken first by, uh, by women uh, returning from a tomb to, to frighten men and it, it's just transformed lives through the years and here we all are just marvelling and giving thanks for what uh, Easter Sunday continues to bring to us a risen Saviour personal, enduring relationship with God and we give you thanks. Amen.